Bibles, you can take those out and turn with me to the Gospel of John. As Pastor Bo said, we're going to take a uh, one-week break in the Gospel of Luke. <clears throat> no. Golly, Moses. Lord, help me. Let's try again. In the Gospel of Mark. <clears throat> it's that bad. That bad. All right. John chapter 8. Did I say that? 8? No. John chapter 8. We'll start in verse 30. This morning we are going to talk about maintaining a culture of um, discipleship. We'll, we'll unpack that. But first, the hearing of God's word. So John chapter um, 8, and we'll begin in verse number 30. Um, The he, like Mark, is Jesus. So as he, Jesus, was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, and if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. This is the reading of God's word. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, draw near to us um, in this time as we look into your word, Lord. Lord, help me to um, rightly divide your word as a servant who needs not to be ashamed. And Father, um, there's no shame in being human. There's no shame in making mistakes. But Lord, superintend over my words and superintend over my thoughts, Lord. No doubt I, like the Apostle Paul said, I am just a weak vessel of clay, Lord. But you have chosen this means so that your glory may be seen and your glory may be put on display. So Lord, as I preach today, Lord, may Jesus be glorified and may his glory shine and may he draw us in to love him and to loving obedience to him that may we see him in and through this word and may we savor him as we savor your word. It's in your name we pray, amen. Um, so I wanted to, to, to define a couple of terms. Um, so we say we want to maintain a culture of discipleship. So first word we'll define is the word um, culture. What do we mean by, by, by culture? And um, simply what we mean by, what I mean by culture is, um, is every, every organization, every family, um, every kind of social group, it, it, it has a culture. 
So even think about like maybe your personal family. I would say if I showed up on a Wednesday night, like I would get a, a, a distinct flavor of the culture of your family. Or if I hung out with your friend group, right? I would get kind of a, some of you'd be like, that'd be a bad place for you, pastor. But you know, we'll talk about that. But I would get an, an idea of the, that, that culture. And so every kind of social group, it has a, a culture, every organization, every sports team, every um, business has a culture. It's the, it's the product of the shared values and it shows up in a shared attitude and a behavior characteristics of a, of a group, it's the, it's the feel, the vibe of a group. Um, I, but my, my go-to illustration and example of this is like within corporations, you experience this like in restaurants that you go to. Like a culture can be either an intentional culture or it can be an unintentional culture, right? So take like, for example, Chick-fil-A. It has a very intentional culture. Like when you go into um, Chick-fil-A, you get a sense of this intentional culture of service and hospitality. It shows up, and some of you have worked in Chick-fil-A, you probably, you know, had rigorous training in this culture, how to produce this culture. So it shows up in the language that's used. I mean, what does all the servers say whenever you make an order? What do they say? My pleasure, right? My pleasure, my pleasure, my pleasure. Like that's not accidental, right? Teenagers don't say my pleasure on accident. They've been coached and they've been trained. And so corporately, it's to produce this intentional culture of hospitality and somewhat of a very intentional culture of organization. Like we see that. Now, again, that's in varying degrees, but across the board, if you go to the Chick-fil-A we have here, you'll experience that. If you go to the one in Atlanta, Georgia, you'll experience that. If you go to New York City, you'll experience very similar intentional culture. Now, we'll contrast that with an unintentional culture of, let's just say, Hardee's. Now, let, let, let me just say this. I'm a huge fan of Hardee's. I'm heartbroken that our Hardee's up here has been closed for a year while it's being remodeled. Personally, I like the food of Hardee's better than I like the food of Chick-fil-A. Judge me. Hardee's is blue-collar. Now, don't like, even though I got a, a V-neck sweater with a white collar on, like, know this about your pattern. I'm blue collar, like construction worker, farmer, still in my blood. And so I love Hardee's. But when you go to Hardee's, you never know what you're going to get. It has a very unintentional culture by the employees. Like, I doubt within their standard operating procedure do they tell them to mix baking, I mean, to mix uh, hamburger grease with the mop water. But it's obvious that they do because you can, like, ice skate right, your way to the counter to place your order. I think it's kind of convenient. And you just never know what you're going to get. I went there one time, and an employees, two employees behind the counter were in an argument. And so they're like, I mean, they're cussing at each other, you know, why don't you just do your job? And then the, the employee goes, hello, how may I take your order? Shut up and get back there and fry the cook, you know, the chicken. And I'm like, you know, just non-confrontational. And here's the deal. It doesn't matter what Hardee's you go to, that will probably be your experience, something similar to that, right? It's a very unintentional culture that they've achieved. So that's what I mean by culture, right? So a culture can be an intentional or unintentional. So when we talk about a culture of discipleship, what I'm speaking of is a very intentional culture of discipleship that we want at the Point Community Church. So if you come into our midst, we want to get the feeling that we care about discipleship and we're encouraging you to be a disciple um, and to follow after Jesus. And so that's a loaded word. Let's talk about what it means to disciple and discipleship. So disciple simply means this, a, a follower of Jesus. That's what a disciple is. 
So think about where we are in Mark. Jesus is gathering his disciples. He's gathered five of them. That's where we are in Mark chapter two. And how has he gathered them? He's called them to, to do what? Two words, follow me. And so that's why we say a disciple is a, a follower, a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, why are these disciples following Jesus? It's not just an elaborate game of follow the leader, but he's calling the disciples to, to follow him so that they may learn from him. So they may hear his teachings and his teachings on the kingdom of God, teachings of who he is, teachings about sin and what sin has done. All of Jesus' teachings, he wants them to learn. That's why for us, one of our core values or core identities is that of a learner. And that's what we mean by that, a disciple. How are you learning? You're learning as we follow Jesus and see it as a way of life that we're following after him. That's what it means to be a disciple, a learner and a follower. Now, when we talk about discipleship, what we're talking about is the, the process, the pattern, the, the rhythm of following and learning. So that's what we're talking about here. It's the process of following and learning and learning to follow Jesus. So it's a, it's a pattern of life that we're involved in, right? It's more, it's more structured. It's more rigid, we can even say. And let's add a third word in here as that of a discipler. And that would kind of be the verb of, I don't know if this is proper grammar, but this would be the verb of discipling or being a disciple, is that one who disciples someone else. And so it's a part of discipleship where a disciple deliberately tries to help another disciple to follow Christ. And that's what a discipler, a discipler is. And that's what like I'm doing even now. Yes, pastor, yes, preacher, but also like a discipler. Like I wanna help you to be a disciple and to follow Christ. And that's the goal. This morning, as Miss D taught, she's sitting in a place of a discipler. And we can go on and talk about that even more. Now, here's the deal. Cultures can be lost. They can, organizations, families, churches can, can drift past that culture. We can lose sight of an intentional culture and fall into an unintentional culture, Right? And so whenever a sports team begins this, right? So let's just say there was a sports team that boasted that they were the gold standard of their organization, the gold standard of their sport, and they begin to drift from that. Where they're no longer the gold standard, they're now like, I don't even know what you would say, right? I mean, the, the, not even the silver staff, but maybe the bronze standard now. They've, they've, they've drifted into that. And then what happens is uh, the team will call a team meeting. They'll say, hey, hey, this isn't who we are. This is who we are. We're, we're the gold standard. We need to do better. We need to play harder out there, right? When organizations begin, intentional organizations have an intentional culture, when they begin to lose sight of their, of, of their culture, when their culture begins to drift, what they will do is they'll call a corporate retreat. You know, maybe they'll have, a, have somebody come in and, and speak about that. For us at the Point Community Church, the way that we um, maintain this intentional culture is we preach sermons. That's what we do. We preach sermons. We, we take the word of God and we press its truths deep into our hearts. We honestly evaluate our own rhythms as a church as well as our rhythms as members and, and, and um, attenders of this church. We look at the scriptures and we say, are we living in congruence to the exhortations and the teaching and the commands of, this, um, of these scriptures. And so that's what we're gonna do this morning. That's what takes us into John chapter eight. 
Now, like I said, we've been in Mark chapter two. This John eight is a little bit further, maybe a year into, another year forward into the life of Jesus. He's gathered all of the 12 disciples now, but it's the same thing that is happening. Jesus is teaching, he's teaching controversial truths. Crowds are following him. He has his disciples. He's also, you know, like we said last week, he's poking the bear. The bear is the Jews. We see that, the religious ones, the rigid rule followers. He's poking them, but, but again, there's these crowds that are coming in. In fact, look at verse number uh, 30 with me. As Jesus was saying these things, so these truths that were carried on from John chapter eight, it says that many believed in him. Now you would look at that and think that's a good thing. Like surely Jesus would see that as a good thing that many are believing in him. But again, this is the crowds and the crowds are coming and pressing in because Jesus is meeting their felt needs. And so Jesus wants to make sure to clearly understand like following him isn't just Jesus meeting your felt needs. That Jesus is calling for more. There's a cost to discipleship. There's a cost to following. And so that's what Jesus is setting up in this. It's the, it's the idea of who are the true disciples. Jesus say, hey, it's just believing in me isn't enough. I mean, Jesus' brother James will say, that's, that's, that's what the demons do. The demons believe in God and they shudder. It takes more than just a belief in, but a following of. And so Jesus hasn't come, as I said a few weeks ago, Jesus hasn't come to draw crowds, but to make disciples. And so he wants to teach them what it means to be a disciple, a true disciple of his. And so then he goes on to say, here's a mark of discipleship. Verse number 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. See, true discipleship. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so what Jesus is doing in this text is he's giving us a, a prescription, if you will, of true discipleship, of what a true disciple is and what that looks like. And so number one, true disciples, they abide in Jesus's word. And look, look, what is Jesus's word? What's well, Jesus's teaching, right? That's what Jesus is. He's a, he's a preacher, he's a teacher. Yes, he is the savior of the world. Yes, he's gonna go to the cross, but he's also, he's preaching and he's, and he's teaching. And what is he preaching and teaching? Well, the gospel of God, the gospel of the kingdom, the truths of the kingdom of God. He's been telling them and demonstrating who he is and calling them to truly believe in him and to truly follow him. And what he's saying is true disciples are those who, who abide in those words. So, so what, is the, what does it mean to, to abide? What does that actually mean when he says that? Well, the word abide means to, uh, to dwell in, to take up dwelling. So we call a house, sometimes you will call it an abode, right? A-B-O-D-E. And that's a derivative of the same word here that Jesus is using for abide. It means to take up residence in. I, I abide in a house at 432 um, Grandma Drive. I give that, I, there's my address. Like don't come and put forks in my yard or toilet paper. But if you wanna bring me over some, some snacks or some food, I like chicken wings. And that's about it. There's other foods I'll eat, tacos. But I really, but if you wanna bring me chicken, like 432, that's where I live. That's my abode. That's my house. I get up in my home, right? That's what we say, it's my home. It's my, it's my residence. I, I get up there. I lay my head down there. I feel very comfortable in my house. I eat in my house. I sleep in my house. And my house is a place of refuge for me. It protects me from the, the elements. I may visit other places, but, 
432 Grandma Drive is my, my home. And we say there's no place like home. And we feel that after we're being gone. And I feel that as well. It is my home. And what Jesus is saying, that you must be at home in his word. And his word must find its home in you. That's what he's saying. In fact, look at, the, look at what he says in verse number 37 to the Jews. He says, I know that you are from the offspring of Abraham, so I recognize that you're Jewish by heritage. That's what he's saying. Yet you seek to kill me. (laughs) Like he's been poking them and now they're, they're literally seeking to kill me. But he's saying, why is this so? Because my word finds no place. It finds no home in you. These words that I'm saying to you, they, they, they don't hit your hearts. You don't believe them. They're not taking them to heart. You're, you're holding them into judgment yourself. You're dismissive of my word, that my word isn't at home in your heart. You have shut the door, disinvited my word in your hearts. And so again, the opposite is what true disciples do. Jesus's words find their home in our hearts. We believe them, we follow them, which takes us to point number two. True disciples obey Jesus's words. Jesus's words, they hit our hearts. They find fertile soil. Hearts that are willing to obey his word. Again, as Jesus is teaching, as we think about his word, right? As we think about that, I mean, many of Jesus's parables will be about this very thing. Think about, we'll get there in in Mark where Jesus will teach on the parable of the soils. And what's the point of that? May, May my word, may my message, may my work, may the gospel find its home on your heart. May your heart be fertile soil. So Jesus will talk about a man who built his house upon the rock and that's the one who hears the word and knows the word and obeys the word and not just rigid rule following but from a heart that's been changed, a heart that loves to obey and true desires to obey. And so true disciples, they obey Jesus's words and true disciples, they continue in Jesus's word. That's another meaning of the word abide. It means to continue in, that we don't move from his word. We stay at home in his word. Like, like if you ever like looked around and been like, you know what, my, my house just feels very boring right now. My, like, this house just doesn't have the same, the feel that it used to have. It feels like, you know, small. And so what do you do? You get on, you get on Zillow and you begin looking for other homes to look at, right? Now, there's, there's, hey, there's nothing wrong with that, but we gotta be careful that we don't do the, the same thing with, with God and his word. Like Jesus, your word feels very restrictive. It feels somewhat boring, not very captivating. Let me, let me find something else that's out there. And so you go looking into some other philosophy or some other teaching or some other thing. Like you get to looking out there and then the next thing you know, you're like, oh, well, this looks better. And all it's doing is breeding discontentment in your heart. But what Jesus says, the true disciples, they, they continue in my word. This is the doctrine of, of um, perseverance, True disciples, they persevere in Jesus's word and they're preserved. How are they preserved? They're preserved by by living and abiding in Jesus's word. And then next in this text, we see an outworking of the abiding in his word. It's a call to abide. And then notice Jesus tells us the, the effects, if you will, of abiding in his word. The outworking of abiding in his word is it produces knowledge. Verse number 32, and you will know the truth. So you abide in his word. And as you abide in his word, as you're spending time in his word, as his word finds its home in your heart and you're continuing in it, you're studying it, you're reading, you're living, you're, you're, 
um, teasing all of that out as it finds its home in you. Notice he says, then you will know something. Abiding leads to knowledge. You're going to learn some things. You're going to know some things. What kinds of things? Well, notice here, one category he puts it, truth. Truth. That God's knowing God's word, having a knowledge of God's word. Notice what he says. Is it leads us to truth. And what's the truth? The truth about what? Well, the truth about ourselves and the truth about sin and the truth about what sin has done to us. It's spiritual truths here. Now, there are truths outside of the Bible, right? Like it's true on how you should change the oil in the old Subaru. That's what I've got, right? Like that, that, that's a truth as to how that, like you're not gonna find that in the Bible. So there's truths outside of this, but these unlock all spiritual truths to us. That's what he's saying. There's spiritual truths that you can find here. Truth about sin and what sin has done to us and the truth about him and the truth about salvation and the truth about what it means to follow him, the truth of who he is and what he's come to do and the truth about who, he, who we are in light of believing in him. Spiritual truths. Notice that knowledge isn't the ends. The ends isn't that we would have big heads with little hearts, but that our hearts may grow. The ends ultimately, notice what he says here in this text. And you will know the truth and the truth will do what? It will set you free. So what's the ends of knowing and abiding in his word? The ends is freedom. What a beautiful word. Knowing truth leads us to the experience of freedom. And we all love freedom, do we not? Isn't that what we're, we're hungry for and what we're looking for is, is freedom? Yes, freedom, that is what we want. As Americans, we got a high value on the idea of, of freedom. Remember, 1776, our forefathers, they declared, they made a declaration of freedom, a declaration of independence. And look, they left something in order to, to enjoy something. It's freedom from something as well as freedom to something. The freedom from was the, the tyranny of, of King George, right? Those of you that have seen Hamilton, you know King George, right? So they're leaving out of the tyranny of King George and a freedom to something. They're leaving the tyranny of taxation without representation. They're leaving out of the tyranny of paying taxes on tea. And so we're like, hey, we're sick of that. So we declare our independence, but what are we looking for? We're looking for a freedom to something. And what is that freedom to? Well, we say it in the Declaration of Independence, a freedom to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And so every freedom is a freedom from something as well as a freedom to something. And the same thing is true here. Jesus has come to set us free. His word frees us. It frees us from the tyranny of sin and frees us to love him and to know him and to follow him and to worship him and to serve him. So this, this text, it's, it's ringing with, with words of freedom. You know, sometimes it's, um, it's in, in small places that teach um, rich truths. Like we at the Point um, Community Church, we have a, we have a rhythm of, of, of our singing, and sometimes we'll sing new songs, but sometimes we sing rich hymns. And sometimes it's in those old, rich hymns that there'll just be a line that you're like, oh my goodness, that's so much rich, deep, beautiful theology in that. And this week as I was preparing that, I was thinking about the hymn that Charles Wesley wrote. It's the hymn of, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. And in that, uh, Charles Wesley, he writes this, listen to this. He says, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoners free. Now you're, now you're humming that along, but oh my goodness. Think about that for just a minute. 
He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoners free. Man, that's a beautiful picture of the gospel. That the gospel is the power by which he has first looked. He's canceling sin. So in Colossians, Paul writes this. He says that Jesus has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. So sin is sometimes pictured as being in debt. I don't know if like, you've ever been in debt, but being in debt is, is tyranny. Being in debt can be, right? It can be very, very crushing, especially if it's a debt that you cannot pay off. And that's what the picture of sin is. It's a debt that we owe to a holy God, a thrice holy God that you and I could never, ever pay off. Like imagine if you uh, mounted up, like you wanna talk about like um, debt forgiveness and student loans. Like I know some of you got student loans and just saying that, you know, puts a shiver up your spine right there as you think about, oh my God, my student loan, how am I ever gonna pay that off? But think about this, what if your student loan was $1 trillion? I mean, you don't even know if Joe Biden could, could absolve that, right? Well, there's enough money for us to absolve that $1 trillion debt. And the Bible says that's what you owe to God because of your sin. Because of the, that, that's tyranny right there. But that, that debt is transferred to Christ on the cross. That as Christ is on the cross and as he's dying a real death and as he's experiencing the wrath of God on that cross, that Christ is absorbing your $1 trillion debt on the cross for what? So that you can go free. That's what Paul said. He's canceled the record of debt against us. And it's a word of freedom. Now look, look, at what, look at what Charles Wesley says. He breaks the power of canceled debt. That not only has he canceled our debt, but he's broken the, the power, the tyranny of that canceled debt. So again, when you're in debt, you're just like, oh my God, I beat you down, right? Figuring out how am I gonna pay for this? I'm gonna have to have a second job, a third job. Like, how am I ever gonna dig my way out of this, you know, hole? Well, the first thing is put down the shovel. Thank you, Clint Goins, for that. You know, that's how you stop digging, stop spending and start saving. But nevertheless, you're like trying to figure all of that out. But notice what, again, what Wesley says, because it's true to what Jesus has done. He sets the prisoners free. How? By, by breaking the power of cancer. What's that power? What's the guilt and the shame that accompanies sin? Jesus has broken all of that. We experience the freedom that, but that comes from a, from a knowledge. You gotta know that. You know, it's like, it's like some of you, I know some of you have been involved in that like new, and you know, again, we're leaving politics aside. We're just talking about, we're just talking about a, a, an image here, right? We're talking about an illustration here, but some of you have opened up your email and you've gotten an email from the federal government saying that that school loan has been forgiven. Woohoo, right? That's what you did. Woohoo! For those of you that are Dave Ramsey fans and you get on and you watch his show and you listen to the call in when people finally get out of debt and they, they call in, what's the words? Freedom! You know, and he plays Braveheart and that, oh, it's freedom that they've experienced. And Jesus is saying, open up the email and see the freedom that I'm leading you in. Freedom from sin and freedom from guilt and freedom from shame and freedom into knowing who you are. It's freedom from, but also a freedom to. And that's what he's saying here in this text. There's a freedom to in this text as well. A freedom to know who you are in Christ. Look, he says, you were a slave under the tyranny of sin, but now you are free. And here's the degree of your freedom. Verse 33, they answered him. We are the offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. 
How can you say you will become free? Now, they're completely spiritually blind here. They have no idea that they're under the tyranny of sin. And they're not even admitting the, the fact that they've never even been politically free for the last like 700 years. But they ignore all of that and they're saying, look, we're free, right? They're completely blind to their spiritual slavery. But Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. What Jesus is saying that through him, there is a fundamental change in identity. Slaves of sin now become sons of God. And that's a very different position in a home, right? It's very different rights. It's a very different posture. If you were a slave serving in a home versus now you are a, a child, a son in that home. And he says, when he sets you free, you move from that. You move to, from slavery to love, to being loved and adopted children of God. That the son sets us free by adopting us in despite the lingering effects of sin. We are the adopted children of the sovereign Lord. That is who you are. And the only way you're gonna find out what all of that means is by reading the Bible, by abiding in his word. So let me sum it up with this long summary, but it's so true. I couldn't stop writing. I just kept writing. And these could be found uh, um, in your notes that are like, if you scan the QR code in front of you, it will take you to um, a PDF. And in that PDF, these sermon notes are there. But this is the summary. True disciples are the adopted children of God who continue to allow his word to find its home in our hearts, which means we desire to experience the fullness of his salvation and to obey his commands. We desire to honor our father, to glorify the son, and to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. We've been freed from the tyranny of sin and heartless and rigid rule following, to follow him in loving obedience. And this is true freedom. But we have to know his word to fully experience this freedom. And knowing his word involves a deep, systematic, continued study of his word. And this study is not just to be done personally, although it is, it is also to be done within a community and with his family. Now, I could stand up here until... 12, 15 maybe, and just read you scriptures from the New Testament that teach what I just summarized right there. I could read from Colossians 3, and I will. I could read from Hebrews 10, and I won't. And I could read through about five other places that teach what I just said there. But you, you, I, I just want you to hear that, that what I've laid out is completely biblical in its, in its entirety there. And now what I want to do, though, is I want to apply that. What does that, that I just said, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us as a, as a faith family? How do we maintain a culture of discipleship? What does that feel like and what does that look like? Well, three ways. Number one is it means that we must make the word central. In order to maintain this culture of discipleship so that slaves may experience the freedom of love, we need to make the word central and all that we do for us as a church. And what I mean by central is this, is the word needs to be available. It needs to be present. It needs to be attainable. And it needs to be unignorable. And hopefully you got a flavor of that as you gather with us week in and week out. 
that the first words spoken, I guess after, welcome to this gathering of the Point Community Church, right? Is we read scripture. Our weekly gatherings, they begin with scripture and they will end with scripture. They begin with a scriptural call to worship and they will end with a benediction that'll come straight from the scriptures. It's why we preach consecutively through books of the Bible. It's why the point of the sermon is the point of the text. It's why the sermon will follow the contours of the text. Why? Because we want to make the word of God central. We want to make it a priority. We want it to be available and present and attainable and unignorable. Our sermons will be, they're derived from the text and they're driven by the text of scripture. Not by my thoughts, not by my political views, not by my attitude, not by what I want to teach, but rather by the text of scripture. That's what drives it and that's where it comes from. The songs that we sing, they are first and foremost biblical. Before we say, hey, that's a sweet melody. Hey, those words are good. We wanna make sure that they are, are biblical. Before any other considerations are made, they need to be biblical. In fact, our worship leaders work hard to try to find songs that teach and match the, the text of scripture that I'm preaching from. And I greatly appreciate that as well. In our kids' point classes, we are striving there, not just at crowd control, but at discipleship. Not just at keeping all the kids in the room, although sometimes that can be tough, but we're striving not just to create a safe environment and a fun environment, although those things are true, but a, a culture of discipleship even there. And so we are getting ready to, um, to launch into a new, a new curriculum. Starting in April, um, we're gonna begin into a new curriculum. It's called The Biggest Story Bible. Um, and there's, yeah, The Biggest Story, and that's the Bible for it. And it's by Kevin what's by Jesus first and foremost, but this iteration of it is by Kevin, Kevin DeYoung is who's done it. And I mean, it's, it's, it's big. And so the materials, the reason why we chose this curriculum is because of the complementary materials that go with this. The materials that you can do at home with your family. That we want the word of God, not just to be central when you're here in this building, but we want the word of God to be central in your, in your homes as well. And there's podcasts and there's take-home materials and there's Bibles for you to read together. Now listen, 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 those of you that maybe you don't have kids, don't sleep on these children's books. Oh my goodness. There's one also called the Jesus Storybook Bible and it is so rich. It is so, like I, I should add it. I've, I've got this list of the, the top five books that every Christian should read. I should, I actually should make it six and add that book to it. It is simply fantastic. And this is fantastic. So if you're not familiar with the Bible, I'd say grab one of these and read it to understand the story line of the Bible. And so that's what we're gonna be teaching. Like I said, there's podcasts for you to follow along with your kids. There's gonna be at home, take home materials for you to do so that the word can be central in your home. Our student group, as they meet, they're not just meeting and eating um, taco bar, I think is the theme tonight. Last week it was granola, this week it's taco bars, the theme. They're not just meeting to eat tacos. Our student group is simply rocking. I'm so thankful for the student leadership team. I've been a couple of times um, already in 2024 and been greatly impressed, but they're, they're studying, they're making disciples. They're doing David Platt's book right now, Follow Me. So guess what it's about? It's about discipleship. They're also, they've come up with a, a series of games that they're gonna do all the way through the summer called Iron Games. 
And in these iron games, they're learning the foundations um, of the Bible, foundational things that they can use to build off of. They're learning the books of the Bible. They're learning the Ten Commandments, the Beatitudes, the Lord's Prayer. They're making disciples in there, foundations for the faith. Our adult discipleship opportunities. Currently, Miss D is teaching, since she's gone full-time, she's now teaching uh, three times a week, three different materials. That's crazy, but she is doing it and doing it well. She's got a discipleship small group with the ladies. She's teaching 1 John to a group of ladies through Micah's school, praise the Lord. And then today, you all started in Leviticus and Numbers. That's awesome. I mean, that's just simply awesome that our ladies would come to learn from the book of Leviticus and the book of Numbers. And then we have our men. Have I ever told you all about um, my most like, embarrassing moment in ministry that I've had? It didn't happen here at the Point Community Church. It actually happened um, when I was a student pastor at uh, another church here in town. And some of, my, some of the folks that are members of the Point were members of my student group. And uh, there was, we, we would have these little weekend getaways, one night deals, you know, like that's what student pastors do. And so we had this one particular one and it was like, guys are gonna go here, girls are gonna go there. And so the guys, we all went with uh, Jeff Wilhoyt who couldn't be here this morning, I wish he could. We went out, Jeff Wilhoyt's dad has a, had a farm way out in Peaks Mill. And so we all got together and all the guys are gonna go out and there's a farmhouse out there and like all the guys are gonna hang out out there. We're gonna play some video games and we're gonna make chili and the guys are gonna hang out. And then all the girls were gonna get together at my house and Luann was going to lead them and they were going to do makeovers and watch chick flicks and hang out. It was just fellowship, just fun, right? And so that's what we decide. And so all the guys, we go out to Jeff's house and like, while, before we get out there, we start talking amongst ourselves. We go, hey, hey, guys, you know what we need to do? We need to go and we, we'll scare the girls, you know, and, and Luann and I at this time, we're living up on Manly Leestown Road and we lived on a little farm and a little farmhouse as well. And so we'll sneak up there and we'll scare the girls. And so we're hanging out and we decided, all right, let's go, let's go get the girls. And so what we did was we were like, what are we gonna take? And so we grabbed pots and pans. And so we were like, we'll sneak up on the girls. And when we get up there, we're gonna take these pots and pans and we'll just bang on the pots and pans in front of the windows and doors and we'll scare them. All right, that, that was our plan. And so we get in the van and we start driving down the road and we get to the, where we live and we turn the lights out. We get out of the van and we're like, you know, we're like stealth ninjas going up through the, we don't go up the driveway. We go up through the, through the woods, up through the grass. We're like army crawling up. And as we get close to the house, I notice there isn't a single light on inside the house. It's midnight, there's not a light on. Then as I begin to look more, I'm like, they've got black plastic over the windows, right? Little did I know, but Jeff Wilhoyt had told his cousin, Sandy, that we were gonna come scare the girls, like a KGB informant, what is going on? And so they're prepared. Well, I realize this and I crawl over to Jeff and I go, hey bud, I think they're on to us. He's like, no, there's no way. And about that time, my front door swings open and 25 or 30 girls come screaming out of it, dressed in camouflage and in black. Their faces are painted like Schwarzenegger in in commando. They've got paintball guns and water balloons and shaving cream. And they just run down there, scream. And we're like beating on our pots and pans. And like, <laughs> so we just run and we stop and we regroup and we're, <sighs> and then some of the guys are like, guys, let's go back. We got to get them girls. I'm like, we got pots and pans. What are we going to do to the girls? They got slouch bombs, you know, like Google that. Like, what are we going to do with that? And then we go and we get in the van. So I'm like, we're whipped, let's just go back. And so we get in the van, 
We go to leave, and as we go to leave, one of the girls or some of the girls had taken, and they'd written in, the, in, in, in shaving cream in the middle of the street, they'd written, girls rule, boys drool. And I just parked the van and put it in park and just said, boys, just, we got to eat that. Like, this, is, this is where we are. And listen, as I've evaluated the Point Community Church and the elders, we've talked about it, and where our, our women are right now, they just are flourishing in God's word. Discipleship opportunities and, and classes and all of these things that are, that, are, that are happening here. And it just feels like maybe the men are, are languishing a little bit. I don't wanna say the men aren't doing anything. We have a super active group of elders and I'm so thankful for them. And many of our community groups are led you know, by men. I, all of our community groups are led by men. I'm so thankful for that. We got men who serve in Kids Point. We got men who serve in students. So I don't wanna say like we're not doing anything, but I do think we can do more. And I do think we need more discipleship opportunities for our men. And so starting on March 10th, we're gonna offer three discipleship groups they're all gonna go through the book of Romans. Now, some of you go like, hey, I've been through the book of Romans. We'll use these little books, knowing the Bible. And you may go, hey, I've, I've been through this book. That's what these, some of you will say, hey, I've already been through this. Listen, unless your teacher's last name was Lloyd-Jones or Moo from Doug Moo, like, believe me, the guy that led you through this book left meat on the bone. And we can always go through it again. In fact, I've used a, a mountain because this is kind of the pinnacle of the Bible is the book of Romans. If you know, as Luther says, if you know the theology of Romans, you know the theology of the entire Bible. And so that's why we'll go back to the book of Romans. And so we're gonna offer these classes on three different times. Each one of the elders is leading one. And so Pastor Stephen will lead a Sunday evening from 5.30 to 7 here. And again, not every week, on the second and fourth to offset our community groups. Second and fourth weeks of the month, we're gonna offer these classes. On Wednesdays during lunch, Pastor Bo is gonna offer one in, in downtown-ish Frankfurt. So if you work for the state, and you get a lunch break, you could probably make that happen. And then on Thursday mornings for the early birds, I will continue to lead my group. Only now we will shift to Romans and we'll be having that. We meet on the west side of town um, at the end of C. Michael Davenport Boulevard. Here's how you can get involved, men, if you're here and you're like, I, I need to do this. I feel the Lord tugging on my heart. I wanna make sure I'm a true disciple. I wanna abide in his word. His word to find its home. Here's what you need to do. You can get on our church center app. At the bottom, you'll see groups, select groups. Under that is a couple different options. One of those options is discipleship opportunities. Click it. In that, you will find one of these groups and then choose the one that fits your schedule and hit a request to join that group. And if you request to join that group, one of us, the three of us, we will follow up with you. All right. Point number two. Point number one, make the word of God central. Point number two is that you are not an exception. Know that you are not an exception. You need to be in God's word. God's word needs to abide in you. True disciples of Jesus are those who are continuously, where the Jesus's word continuously finds its home in our hearts. So be a follower, be a learner, be a student. That throughout the Bible, we find commands and we find exhortations. Exhortations are, are, are strong prescriptions in the text that, that urges us to act in a specific way. I would say being a discipleship group is an exhortation. It's a strong urge for us to act in a specific way. Now, uh, letting God's word abide in a heart, that's a command. You have to do that. 
but the outflow and the outworking and an example of how can I let God's word find its way as a home would be for you to be in one of our discipleship groups. And so that's why I wanna make that distinction between a command and an exhortation. To not meet a command with anything other than obedience would be sinful. But I wanna give you some categories at why we might not be able to meet an exhortation. So you have an exhortation like the one I've shared with you. And you really only have two options beyond that. You can either um, meet that exhortation with obedience or disobedience. And that's, that's pretty much it. Now, I'll give some subcategories. Like, hopefully your obedience would be, for the most part, joy-filled obedience, but there's sometimes it's a discipline and it's hard and you don't wanna do it. Sometimes you sit in the driveway at your community group and you go, I don't wanna go in there. I'm kind of peopled out. You press yourself to do it because you know it's, it's what your heart and soul needs. And hopefully when you leave, you say, you know what? That was really hard, but I'm glad I went, right? So there's times when our obedience is less than joyful, but we don't just follow the, the sale of our emotions. We do what's right. But then there is sometimes where we may disobey it. We're not doing it. And I wanna give some categories maybe to help you think at maybe the why. Drill down to the root of disobedience. And maybe it's because you're unable to do it. Like you, you're disobeying that exhortation because you're unable to, to follow it. And there's just seasons when it's really, really hard. I, I think about Pastor Frank, who's Frank and Vivian, who are caring for their mothers who live in Las Vegas. So they're in Las Vegas a lot. Pastor Frank has retired. And so there are times where we have a Thursday morning, that Thursday morning Bible study, Frank can't be there because he's in Vegas. He's unable to be there. He's unable to obey, but it's, it's understandable. And it's for a season. And there's times for you, you've got small children that you're unable to do it. I think about a few of the men here. We got selected times that we can kind of meet with men. And some of you men, you, you work late at night. So you're on the night shift. And so you may be unable and so to, to join one of our groups. So that's, that's understandable. There's times when it's unable, but you also need to, to make God's word um, central in your life. Even though it may be unable now, you need to maybe think about your life. And maybe for some of you would say, yes, I'm unable to meet. Are you really unable to meet? I'm, able, I'm able, unable to join a community group right now. I'm una, unable to join a, a, a discipleship group right now. I'm unable to come to Leviticus and Numbers. Are you really unable? Do you just maybe need to examine and prioritize things? And we leave that up to you. Second category is, is it unimportant though? Maybe you just have missed the importance of it. Maybe you just missed the importance of being in God's word. Maybe the accessibility and familiarity of God's word has bred a certain amount of contempt in your heart towards it. Maybe you wouldn't have registered, but you're just thinking, well, I don't know, is it really important for me to gather together with a group of people and study God's word? Is it really important for me to be in community? Is it really important? I was reminded even um, this week of the importance of God's word as I saw, it's like a 10-year-old video. It's a video of, of missionaries going into China and they smuggled in a suitcase full of Bibles. And they go into this small house church and they undo the suitcase and they open it up. And it's filled with the Bible. The people are like, they're like, this is what we needed the most. And they're picking up the Bible. And women are just standing there holding it. And have you ever seen it? And hugging it. It's holding God's word. One lady's like, this is what we needed the most. Just savoring it, the opportunity. What had happened? They'd never had a Bible in their own language. They got it in their hearts. They just explode in joy. And then some of us, we just, you know, unimportant. So there's a challenge to us. Maybe you see it as unimportant. Certainly it's important. 
which takes us to the third response, which is a scary place to be. And that's to know the importance and to have the ability, but simply to be unwilling, unwilling to be obedient. And that's an indictment of the heart. And that's exactly, I think, what Jesus, that is exactly what Jesus in John 8 is warning us against. His willful disobedience to an exhortation to be in his word, even though you've got the ability, even though you hear because you sit under good teaching of the importance of it. But to simply say, like, I'm unwilling to do it. I'm unwilling to do it. And if that's you, then it's a call, I think, to, to repentance, to correct your heart, and to correct your heart through doing right actions by joining and by doing it. And I don't know, maybe there's other reasons. Maybe you can come up and say, well, there's other reasons why I can't. Like, I don't know, it just felt, feels complete. Maybe, you know, your other reason has to start with a you, but maybe it just feels complete. And maybe this is just a good time for you to sit under that. We want the word of God to be central. We want it to take priority. We want the word of God to be accessible. We want the word of God, um, we want to be reminded that we are not exceptions to the rule. And lastly, we need us. Colossians 3.16, I said I was going to read it. Here it is. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's what we're after. What does it mean by maintaining a culture of discipleship? It's this right here. That the word of Christ may dwell in us richly. How do you achieve that? Teaching and admonishing one another. There's the one another. One another. We need each other. We need one another's in all wisdom, in singing psalms, in hymns, and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. This is the culture that we desire to be at the Point Community Church in one text. A people, disciples following after Jesus where Jesus' word is dwelling richly in us overflowing in our hearts, where we're teaching and we're admonishing one another. See, some of you may be unable. You may be unable to gather, but here's what I would ask you. Are you could, could you just lead a group? Could you take this and lead a group? Maybe some of you say, I've been through it so many times, then take this and get with someone else and move out of that place of just being a disciple into that place of being a discipler. Maybe you can do that. We wanna be a church that sings psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. We need community. We need each other. Let's study the word together. Let's dig in, abide deeply in his word together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the beauty and the power of your word. Thank you, Lord, that you loved us enough that as you departed from this world, that you left the spirit that would fill apostles, Lord, who would continue to write your words, thankful for the apostles that followed after you, Lord, and that you superintended over them as they wrote down the accounts of Jesus. We're thankful for the prophets in the past that spoke inspired truths, inspired words, as the apostle Peter says, that they've been carried along by the Holy Spirit to write and to pen your word. We're thankful, Lord, that you have superintended over your word and preserved it for centuries, that what we hold in our laps, that we can love it and we can receive it by faith for what it is. It is not the product of man, but it is the very word of God. And we can love it and we can receive it knowing that it is incorruptible seed that transforms us and changes us, that it's not impotent, but it's very 
powerful in its working, that it breaks the power and the tyranny of sin and forms us of who we are and it grows us supernaturally. We're thankful, Jesus, that you love your sheep enough as the good shepherd to feed us and you have fed us with 66 books. Thank you for that, Lord. And we take them in and we, they find their home in us and we find our home in them. They are a refuge from this world. They are the truth that sets us free. And we give you praise for it. And we're thankful for that in Jesus' name. Amen.